Okay, I guess we're going to start. It's kind of shy here. Uh, we might actually uh, have to look at this. Where did everybody go? We have one person actually in the room today besides myself, which seems a little bit short on numbers somehow. Um, slightly late in starting here because apparently when someone uses the microphone and does not turn it off, it runs the batteries down. So then you have to dig around and find batteries so that you can start again. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to uh, talk some more today about the serum proteins. And then uh, depending on where I get to, we're probably going to set up to start some discussions based on some process scenarios that I'm, I've already posted to D2L. I posted them at the very beginning of the semester, but then we're going to look at those process scenarios in relation to what's happening to the different protein fractions along the way. We'll talk a little bit more about how that's going to happen here when we get done with the set of slides, but I uh, thought I'd start out today with with a reminder that summer was just here, uh, a nice bumblebee on a rose. Those little buggers are hard to get. They're really fast. They zip around a lot. So to get them to sort of just be hovering enough that you can actually get their picture. I mean, I watched that guy for a couple of minutes until he finally sort of stayed in one spot long enough I could click and get him. But uh, I think it came out okay. Tricky, tricky to do. Um, can anyone tell me what slide number I was on? Was I on this slide, which is I think slide 19 or was it a different number? Does that seem like where we were before? Anyone paying attention to that? It seems about where I was, but I don't think. What? Okay. We remember that slide. That was up. We'll start from there. It won't take that long to review it quickly. Come on. Talked a little bit about, uh, we've been talking about beta-lactoglobulin, that globular serum protein that in its tertiary form looks sort of like a softball glove. We were talking about uh, denaturation and aggregation. Denaturation is a change in the structure or the shape of that protein based on some applied stress, quite often heat, but perhaps a change in pH, something that causes it to be different than its native structure. Aggregation is the hooking together then of several of those denatured proteins, but aggregation only occurs after 
denaturation. We cannot have proteins start to aggregate or agglomerate together prior to the unraveling of their original secondary and tertiary structures to allow us to start that aggregation to occur. The extent of denaturation will have an influence on the types of aggregation, the properties then of that aggregate, and we're going to try and utilize that in some regard to create uh, fat mimetic properties using whey proteins in replacement for milk lipids in lower fat dairy formulas. Beta-lactic globulin can be irreversibly denatured by heat. If you put in enough heat, actually it doesn't take that much heat. You have to get above 70 degrees C or basic HTSD pasteurization temperature, 161. You get much above about a half a minute at that temperature and you start to unravel or change that tertiary structure. Under conditions of low temperature, long time pasteurization, that 145 for 30 minutes, we do not denature the beta-lactoglobulin. We accomplish pasteurization, but we don't denature the serum proteins. But at the lowest temperature listed for HTST pasteurization, if we even double that time from 15 to 30 seconds, we start that denaturation process with the beta-lactoglobulin. So it's fairly sensitive to that input of heat. And once we've started to unravel it, there's really no going back. Why? Disulfide bonds that hold that tertiary structure together are relatively easy to open with the input of energy. They're going to be much more fragile than many of the other bonds within this system. We pull those bonds apart. We now have free sulfhydrals and sulfhydrals do not like to be by themselves. They're going to try and find another sulfhydral, whether it's on the original molecule or another molecule close. If it's been opened up, it's more likely to attach to a sulfhydryl on another molecule and start forming an aggregate. Three different kinds then of aggregates involving beta-lactoglobulin. And that I'm pretty sure is where we haven't gone forward from here. The first type of aggregates that we see based are occurring with beta-lactoglobulin, the type ones are dimers, two beta-lactoglobulins hooked together, formed when we have two denatured monomers, creating then intermolecular bonds with the sulfhydryl groups to themselves. It's not linking many of those beta-lactoglobulins together, it's just two of them. So then those five sulfhydryls on one find the five sulfhydryls on another and link together, create a simple dimer. That dimer is different than the dimer formed 
when we form it because of a change in pH. The dimers formed when we change it because of temperature denaturation are different than the ones formed because we've changed the pH of the solution. Type two aggregates, we're hooking together several type one dimers to create a much larger aggregate. But in this case, we are not involving the disulfide bonds because we've already used those up in the formation of the initial type one dimer. So the type two is taking several type ones and linking them together not using a disulfide bond. Type threes, more similar to type twos than type ones, but we're linking all of these things together. We did not necessarily have to start with a type one heat denatured dimer that we start linking together. We could be talking about those dimers that were originally formed because of pH change and then have some heat induced change at a different pH than neutral. And that will link us into a type three aggregate. So there's a relatively infinite number of types of aggregates that we can end up having these collections of individual monomers of beta electroglobulin hooking together, creating dimers, octamers, polymers, larger and larger molecules until they are no longer stable and they come out of the solution. That's dependent upon specific environmental conditions, temperature, pH, concentration of solution, all of those variables interacting will end up, end up giving us different forms of a denatured beta-lactoglobulin. So to just say it's denatured is really not enough. It doesn't tell us very much about the conditions that caused that denaturation to occur and therefore doesn't tell us a lot about the potential properties that are now present in this newly structured protein that still has the primary strand of a beta-lactoglobulin, but no longer has the secondary and tertiary structures that it started with. pH, ionic strength, rate of heating, overall temperature, input of shear, other types of proteins present, all impact final attributes of that protein aggregate that we have. If there's caseins present, if we happen to be having a mixed protein uh, blend, maybe we've got some soy protein in there. We've got some protein from some other nut source. They're going to have different interactions do we homogenize? Are we mixing? What sort of turbulence is occurring during the heating process? 
all of those things can impact our final product. So it's, it's not necessarily going from point A to B when we say it's denatured. It's A to somewhere, but there's an awful lot of possible things as to where that final destination is related to the protein interactions. Beta-lactoglobulin and kappa casein do like to interact with each other. When we heat milk to temperatures above 70 degrees C, and 70 degrees C is 161.2 degrees F, if anybody is not wanting to do the conversion themselves, we will start to have some change in the structure of the beta-lactoglobulin because we start to open up the disulfide bonds. Kappa casein has present one pair of cysteines. So it can link, not extensively, but it can link to those free sulfhydrils when we start to open up the beta-lactoglobulin. that almost universally will occur when we HTST pasteurize milk. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Not necessarily something we're going to apply those terms to. What we know is the aggregation will occur anytime we get to conditions above basic temperature for an HTST pasteurization. This occurs in a model system where all you have present is purified beta-lactoglobulin and purified kappa casein. The same reactions occur in a mixed system, which is milk, that contains other fractions also. It still ends up having the same interactions between the beta-lactoglobulin and the kappa casein because they both have the ability to have the presence of that sulfhydro group because they contain a cysteine in their primary chain of the amino acids. Seventy-two degrees C. We're looking at just a hair above one sixty-two F. Well, it's pretty hard to run your pasteurizing system right at one sixty-one. It'll cut in and cut out all day. So we're almost universally going to have that occur in an HTST pasteurized milk product. In a vat pasteurized product, we do not get this interaction. So if we're trying to figure out a product that does not have this interaction, we need to change our process to eliminate that heat input that create that interaction. There is a fair amount of stability imparted upon the milk when we have that interaction. That level of stability does not involve either the alpha 
S1, alpha S2, or beta fractions. It's purely the interaction of the beta lactic globulin and the kappa casein. And when we get to very high temperature processed dairy foods, things like a UHT creamer or a UHT milk, the overall ratio, the balance of beta lactic globulin to kappa casein becomes important. If we can't have the balance of the protein fractions where we want them, we may need to add some other substance to interact with the ionic calcium that's also present in the milk. When the beta-lactic globulin and kappa casein interact, they're increasing the stability by providing additional protection by scavenging ionic calcium. If there isn't more or the ratio isn't proper, then we have to control the ionic calcium in the very high temperature heated products or we induce instability and the products will start to gel, precipitate, and we don't get what we're looking for. Any thoughts on beta-lactoglobulin? Nobody's uh, like raising their hand out there in the little black screen land. Nobody likes their cameras apparently. Well, there's one person, see? But not a lot of concern about beta-lactoglobulin today. All right, so we're gonna move forward to alpha-lactalbumin talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to introduce the process interaction scenarios related to proteins and different dairy products. So alpha-lactalbumin is the shortest of the primary chain sequences of overall proteins we've talked about. Alpha-lactalbumin only has 123 residues. That beta-lactoglobulin had more like about 167, eight. The casein's between 197 and about 208. They're different lengths. This is a smaller protein. It has a smaller overall molecular weight. Alpha-lactalbumin represents roughly one quarter of the total serum proteins in cow's milk. Curiously, it has the basic same amino acid sequence as lysozyme, which is an enzyme that will go in and lyse certain things. But because of when it's secreted and what it's interacting with at the time, it behaves differently. They have totally different activities and they tend not to interfere with each other within the same system, even though they have very similar amino acid sequences, their function, their final form is enough different, they don't interfere with each other. Alpha-lactalbumin is a very, very compact globular protein. It's much more spherical 
it's less like that baseball glove, softball glove that the beta-lactoglobulin was. It doesn't have sort of an opening crease. It's very much a sphere, nice and tight. It has that structure because of its amino acid sequence. Because it's that nice tight sphere, it's more stable to interactions than the beta-lactoglobulin. Why is it so tight? Because it has four pairs of disulfide bonds, right? Four, four disulfide bonds from eight cysteines. Because beta-lactoglobulin had that odd cysteine, it always had that ability to start intermolecular interactions because it had that free sulfhydryl. There is not that free sulfhydryl normally present in alpha-lactalbumin. It's not wanting to start forming dimers and octamers and other things because it doesn't have those free sulfhydryls to create quaternary structures with something else. It takes a lot of energy to break into this tightly bound spherical globular protein. But once you get that interaction started, once you finally break in and begin to unfold and denature an alpha-lactalbumin, there is no going back. The protein that many of you might be familiar with that's most similar to alpha-lactalbumin is ovalbumin, which is an egg white. If you think about the action of an egg white in a pan, for a fair amount of time, you can heat it and nothing appears to happen. But within about a degree or so of hitting a specific temperature, you, you finally catalyze that reaction. You break in to that albumin structure. And once you start to unravel it, you create a very distinct semi-solid, the egg whites in the pan, and there's no going back. You can take a solution of alpha-lactalbumin, put it in a pan, heat it up, and it will behave in the same fashion as the egg whites in a pan. It's because of that structure, because of the cysteines present, those initial sulfhydryl groups creating that tertiary structure. Similar to beta-lactoglobulin, alpha-lactalbumin contains no phosphorus. The inference we can make from that statement is that they also contain no serine as an amino acid in their primary sequence. In the caseins, when we encountered the serine, we would get a phosphate attached, we would have a phosphoserine that enabled the formation of those calcium phosphate bridges. We don't have calcium phosphate bridges in the serum proteins because there's no phosphorus, because there's no serine. 
So if I were to ask you a question, why do we not find calcium phosphate bridges in the serum protein interactions? What would be the first part of your response? There are no serines in the primary sequence. That basically sums it all up. So you need to think about how the, the building block parts create very specific interactions as we build the whole thing up. So there's no phosphorus, no calcium phosphate interactions with alpha-lactalbumin. Generally, serum proteins, if not heated, can withstand fairly dramatic swings in pH in the solution. In a room temperature solution, you can change the pH containing alpha-lactalbumin or beta-lactoglobulin, and you won't induce a lot of changes. But if you've preheated it and then do those pH changes, you will initiate several self-association reactions. You'll create conditions where it aggregates, precipitates out, and forms that gel structure. pH alone won't do it. But if it's been heated first and then you change the pH, then you can get this series of reactions to start. From a heat only standpoint, alpha-lactalbumin is the most stable of the serum proteins because it has that even number of cysteine. So there's no free sulfhydryls out there to start interactions. At 77 degrees or 170F, you can heat milk to 170 degrees and hold it for 30 minutes. And only 50% of the alpha-lactalbumin would have started to denature. That's, you know, if we went to 90 degrees C, if we go all the way up to say 195, we're going to push that reaction along more quickly. But for the majority of milk products, especially cheeses, we don't get to 77 degrees C. So heat denaturation of the serum proteins when we're pasteurizing cheese milk involves the beta-lactoglobulin, but not alpha-lactalbumin. So if you just make the blanket statement, the serum proteins denatured because we pasteurized it and that caused this to occur, that's not true. It's only the beta-lactoglobulins that are participating at the normal pasteurization rates of cheese milk going to a vat. We start talking about something like UHT milk then clearly also we could be involving the alpha-lactalbumin, but it's much more resistant to heat input than the beta-lactoglobulin. 
that's related to its pairing of cysteines, so there's no free sulfhydryls present in the system. Interestingly, the biological function of alpha-lactalbumin, its actual function within the mammary system is it is involved in the Golgi apparatus as the precursor for lactose synthesis. If there is no free alpha-lactalbumin present within the Golgi apparatus, then no additional lactose will be synthesized. It's the catalyzing enzyme that regulates lactose synthesis. That's why it's there. Okay. So if you have conditions where there's going to be a change in overall amount of alpha-lactalbumin, there will also be a change in the amount of lactose secreted because they're tied together. If we go back a day or two ago, we made the statement that there's no beta-lactoglobulin in human milk. There's a higher proportion of alpha-lactalbumin in human milk. Human milk in general has a much higher lactose level. Bovine milk, around 5% lactose. Human milk, more like about 7.2% lactose on average. There's more lactose there. There's not beta-lactoglobulin. There's still some caseins. There's a difference in the lipid content. They're not identical things. Just why we don't feed cow's milk to an infant who's only two weeks old. It's not gonna be the same. We have to give their digestive system a little time to develop enough that we can introduce something that's relatively similar that will do the function, but it's not identical. So alpha-lactalbumin is higher, lactose is higher, beta-lactoglobulin essentially does not exist in human milk. So we have those variants that are gonna be there in the system. Much smaller molecular weight for alpha-lactobumin, 14,000. We're looking at a molecular weight on that beta-lactoglobulin of a, around 18,000. The alpha-S caseins were around 23, almost 24,000. So we can potentially use membrane filtration to separate these. It's getting a little bit challenging because it's not that much difference but it is possible to do that. So there's only a couple other serum proteins of interest to talk about before we set up the discussion on process interactions. Bovine serum albumin is a very, very large molecule. It's nearly three times larger 
than the casings. It has 17 intramolecular disulfide bonds and one free sulfhydro. There's 35 cysteine residues in a bovine serum albumin primary chain. So it's fairly tightly bound. It has a lot of secondary and tertiary structure, but since most of that structure is built around a disulfide bond, which are nearly the easiest things to break as we input energy, this is one of the least stable protein fractions to changes in heat that we have in milk. We change the configuration of the bovine serum albumin, whether we vat pasteurize the milk or we HDS depasteurize it. Because those disulfide bonds, especially since there's one free one that allow it to hook to something else and start forming intermolecular interactions, tends to unravel and fall out of solution fairly quickly. The immunoglobulins are proteins. They're globular proteins that have specific immune function. First two or three days postpartum in almost any animal is different in the lactation cycle than any other. It's when all of those immunoglobulins are present and pushed out to the neonate to try and give their immune system a running start, okay? Immunoglobulins are very elevated in colostrum. They tend to also be elevated in mastitic milk. They allow by their consumption by the neonate to develop passive immunity. The other thing to note about the immunoglobulins, they are the most heat sensitive of all of the protein fractions in milk. So when we heat milk to temperatures of maybe 125 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not even gonna get us to pasteurization, we start to disrupt the secondary and tertiary structure of the immunoglobulins and they no longer have the immune function that they were going to originally have. This is this little fraction right here, the immunoglobulins is the primary argument for raw milk consumption. If you're trying to pass on passive immunity to the neonate through immunoglobulin consumption, then heating the milk to anything above about 110 degrees Fahrenheit will inactivate them. So we're not gonna pasteurize. We can't get rid of the, the potential pathogens at that point. But how often do you really need to be getting continually that bump in immunoglobulin fraction, which is not very much anyway, versus the risk of the potential pathogen. 
from a public health standpoint, we tend to universally err on the side of getting rid of the pathogens instead of trying to preserve that little bit of immune function that you get at the beginning, which is not enough of an immune function to fight off the pathogens if you also get a pathogen. But it's part of the serum protein fraction in milk. Okay, I'm gonna share one screen with us. In D2L, in the content tab, you'll find this document. It's a simple one page and it's process interaction discussion scenarios. There are three scenarios listed there. And what I would like to do is to have the folks who normally come to class on a Monday get together in some fashion and start to talk about scenario one. The folks who normally come on Wednesday will talk about scenario two. The folks who normally come on Friday will talk about scenario three. Get yourself together, small group, chat, whatever it needs to be to get to begin talking about that. On Friday, my proposal is that all of us sign into Zoom so we can actually talk to each other and hear each other. And then group one, group two, three, the Monday, the Wednesday, the Friday people will will tell us about what they think might be occurring. And then we'll sort of break that down and discuss it and we'll work through those. We may get through only one, we may get through two, we might get through all three on Friday, but Friday and Monday we'll be talking about from the product standpoint, what we now know the process interactions might be, how to describe that, what's actually happening. But if you as your groups, there should be approximately five individuals to a group, can talk about those before we get together, all of us on one Zoom on Friday, I think it'll work that way. I can't figure out another way that we can really have a good set of discussions other than all of us basically on Friday being on a screen. Does that seem plausible? What day do you want to join? Monday, Wednesday, or Friday? Wednesday. So Hiran is going to be with the Wednesday people. Otherwise, you know which day you normally come. Try and find the rest of those folks. And somewhere between now and Friday morning, begin talking about how you think those process interactions are gonna go. I might be able to figure out breakout rooms. I know they exist that we could send out and do more discussion as groups Friday morning before we come together. I'll work on that. But I think that's our best approach to figuring out how all of this chemistry we've talked about over the last couple of weeks actually applies to 
different dairy foods. Does that make sense? Then that's where I'm stopping today. This document is on D2L in the contents tab. Your challenge, your task to find your other group members, initiate some starting conversation about that. If you don't know a whole lot about the product, hopefully somebody else in your group will. That's the advantage of having at least four or five people in that group. Someone should understand enough about the process that you should all be able to come along and be able to do some conversation on those interactions. Okay, so on Friday, those folks who normally come, you can come, that's perfectly fine, but all of us will be on a screen so we can all have a single discussion Zoom if that will work, okay? All right, that's it for today. I'll try and figure out how to get out of this thing for now. <laughs>